we, we're looking at, as Curly mentioned, we're looking at the seven churches of Asia. And these seven churches of Asia, they're seven churches that Jesus wrote a letter to and said, you know, here's some things that you got that are going right to a couple of them. That's all he had to say. Hold on. Just encourage them. Here are some things that you got right, and here are some things you, that you need to work on. And uh, to one, that's all he had to say. There wasn't anything they had right. He just had to thump them on the head. You know, it's pretty rough. It's, it's bad enough when your Sunday school teacher or your preacher or your grandmother thumps you on the head. It's worse when it's Jesus sits down and takes the time to write a letter to you and says, knock it off. But that we'll get to that letter sooner rather than later. But that happened. Pergamum is one of those with some good, some bad, and you know, some things they need to deal with. And I think that's the ones that we relate to really well because truthfully, most churches, that's, that's us. And I think the reason that Jesus wrote these letters, sent them through John the Apostle to these churches, I think the reason He wrote them and the reason He made sure that every church read every other church's letter is because in some ways, every church will during its life cycle be in all of these places at some point. There are times when, when, when we are so dysfunctional, all Jesus wants to say is repent. There are times when things are going so well that He doesn't have any criticism to give. And there are lots of times, the averages in this letter, where there's some things that you're doing right, some things we're doing right, some things other churches are doing right, and some things we need to work on. And the things that He lists are things we're all familiar with things that we go through. You know, it's kind of like Dragnet. The names were changed to protect the innocent. And, and that's kind of the way I read these letters. He, he just as well be writing to us. He just changed the names so that we would feel like, wow, they were really a mess, you know, and not, not feel so bad, I guess. I don't know. That's the way it is. Uh, this church, Pergamum, interesting city. You can see it up there on the map, there at the very top. And an interesting layout that the city had when you... When you look at it, it's kind of in this horseshoe. You notice there is the, uh, I have a laser. I don't have to use my finger, do I? There. Unless I put my finger over the laser and then it does not work. But this here is the steepest of the Roman auditorium, amphitheater auditorium. You know, you know what I'm trying to say. The steepest amphitheater in ancient Rome. And so uh, probably would not pass ADA, but... It was there. You can see how big and huge this thing was. And all around, you know, back up here was an altar to a god. There's an altar to a god. Here was the altar to a god, Zeus, uh, and several others that would circle around the town. This is kind of a good drawing to give you an idea of what it would have looked like before. And here is the temple, the Acropolis, uh, dedicated to Zeus. But that wasn't, it wasn't just Zeus that they worshipped. Pergamum had a, a reputation for being a very pagan very pagan, and that's the right word, city. Temples, uh, several, d uh, dedicated to different gods. Of course, you had Zeus, which is kind of the highest of the, in Greek mythology. But you had the, the altar to Zeus, uh, broken bits of which are still there, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. You had those that were to the god of healing. This will, will creep Tanya absolutely out, I am sure. And I should, probably won't be the only one, but Tanya does not like snakes. If Tanya had been Eve, there would have been no fall, there would have been no sin, and we'd all just be happy in the garden. That's the way that would have worked. So <laughs> she'd, have, she'd have shot that thing full of holes like Swiss cheese. So while running, which is really a talent to be able to do that behind your back. But anyway, this God of healing that they would worship, they would, you, would, you would go to this temple and you would make an offering to the God of healing. Then you would uh, see a, a, a healer, doctor, priest, really probably is more the right word, uh, of this God of healing. And he would kind of uh, 
diagnose. And don't you know that was probably great, a first century God of healing diagnosis. I'm sure that's exactly where you'd want to go now, right? But this is what they would do. They'd get their diagnosis and they would prescribe something for them to do. One that was very, very common was you would spend the night at the temple of healing. Now, that might not sound that big a deal, right? Other than the whole idolatry and going to hell part. We won't talk about that yet. But the, the, the part that was, that was a little creepy was they would put you in this dark, dark room. They would drug you up with their herbs and you would pass out for the night. And then they released the snakes. And while you slept, these snakes crawled all over your body because they believed that the snake, the serpent, had healing capabilities. That ain't Motel 6, is it? That is bad. Y'all are all like, I want this sermon over now, please. It's like snakes on a plane. So that's, that's what they would do. And the symbol, by the way, for that God is on most ambulances and hospitals. Some of you may have worn it on your uniform. The little pole with the two snakes that twist up and you have the two wings goes back to this pagan God at Pergamum and the worship of Him for healing. So, you know, we have more of Rome among us than we may think that we do. And that's just one example among many. Other gods, they had the god of Dionysus. That, that place was like Vegas. You would go, they had temple prostitutes. We were talking last night that, you know, sometimes we think the world is really, really bad and we might think that it's worse than it was during Rome. Well, let me tell you, unless the church down the street starts having prostitutes and snakes crawl all over you during the sermon... I don't think we're there yet. I think, I think we've got a little bit to go. And that temple, uh, you know, people would go and they would offer sacrifices and then they would have parties and orgies and drunkenness. And this is a lot of what Paul was writing against and what Peter wrote against about not getting involved in all of that kind of mess. This was the stuff that they lived with every day. And you think, as a Christian, in one way, that might make it simpler. Because it gets very easy to tell light from darkness when, when, when the darkness is such that you can't pretend it's anything else. Now, we live in a time where sometimes the darkness is, is spoken of as if it's principle, as if it's morality, as if it is not darkness, even though it is. And so we will, and, and especially with emotional arguments, and so sometimes uh, Satan will, will paint things that are evil as though they are good. And scriptures tell us about that, don't they? And call evil good and good evil. And that's kind of the time we live in. The time they lived in, there wasn't much of that. It was pretty obvious what was what. Okay? And, and still, even in our time, there's a lot of it that's quite obvious, but we try to soothe the difference, which we'll get to because he deals with that. So they had those gods. They had Zeus. They had several others. You know, We don't need to go through the entire list, but, but a very, very pagan, pagan city. It got very difficult. I will say this. One of the things that was difficult in first century Rome and would have been true definitely in Pergamum and that, that Revelation deals with later is that your job often called on you to worship another god. Just as, as trade unions might have a mascot, back then trade unions had a token god. And to be part of that trade union, you had to pay homage to that god. If you wanted to be a carpenter, you had to pay an homage to, offer sacrifices to, maybe even eat the meals at the temple of the god, patron god of carpenters. And that made having jobs and work and a steady living more difficult. And, and that's part of what Revelation is talking about when it talks about, you know, they're going to, you know, make sure that you don't have jobs and charge you more and not let you have work. That was part of what was going on at the time. 
And uh, so that, that makes things more difficult. Then it gets down to an even more difficult part where just being a citizen of Rome starts to bring you in conflict with your faith. Now, we wouldn't know anything about that where being a citizen sometimes brings you in conflict with your faith. That's just things we read about in the Bible. But they had this problem because one of the things that Pergamum was famous for was that it was the first city to erect a, a temple to Caesar as God. Now, now not, not a dead Caesar. There were other places that had temples to dead Caesars you know, that, that became gods after their death. They were the first one to build religion around the idea that the Caesar who was still in power was himself a god, a deity. And so they built a temple to the Caesar. Well, here's the problem with a living Caesar who thinks he's God. A living Caesar who thinks he's God is going to want you to worship him and make it a condition of your good citizenship, and that's exactly what happened. And so there were times where if they heard that you were not going and giving the sacrifices to Caesar, they would call you in before the proconsul and they would drill you and ask you why. And as a Christian, what are you going to tell them? Before you can answer that question, consider this. What they wanted you to do was to go and take a pinch of incense and offer it at the altar to Caesar, the worship altar to Caesar. And as you put that incense in, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, that makes it more difficult, isn't it? Man, we think it's rough having crazy people to vote for. Imagine if they made us worship them and say, Candidate X is God. This is what they lived with. And it's what some of them died for. Let's read this, this letter that Jesus writes and see some of what he says here. Starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That two-edged sword always in reference to the judgment according to his word. You know, the double-edged sword of his word. Him who holds the word, the standard of living, the way that God wants us to be. He's coming. So he says, Behold, the one with the two-edged sword, I know where you dwell in Satan's throne, where Satan's throne is. By the way, this... this uh, Acropolis up here that's all decayed is, is kind of what he's referring to. This idea that they just, Pergamum is so wretched, so dark, that, you know, it's just, it's a rhetoric device. It's like Satan has his throne right there. Yet you hold fast. This is a good thing. He said, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, he, uh, he makes mention here, and I think, let me see, made it, maybe I've forgotten. Let me go ahead to this one. He makes mention of Antipas. Antipas was a member of that church. We don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, what tradition we do have says that Antipas was one of those people who was called before the proconsul and who was judged guilty 
of dishonoring the Caesar when he refused to say Caesar is Lord and instead said, I have only one Lord, Jesus Christ. He stood his ground and it cost him. They took him up to that, uh, that, the altar at the Acropolis that I showed you there and they put him in a bronze bull and they offered him alive as a sacrifice. That's what this picture is a toned down version. This is kind of the Disney version. This is a, an Orthodox icon, but they burn him alive in a bronze bull on this altar right up there. So you, when you look at this, you have a brother who was burned alive right up here in that bull. He says, that man was faithful. That man never gave up. And he says, one of the things that I have for you at Pergamum is that I know where you are and I know how hard life is. I know how dark it is. I know that you must feel like the whole world is against you and against you keeping your faith. You hold on. Because I know where you are and I know those that are troubling you and I'm going to deal with them. And he, he talks about Antipas and his faithfulness. And he admires this church because even after they've lost this brother, a lot of them are standing firm and they themselves refused to say Caesar is Lord. They refused, even if it meant their job or their life, to participate in what was going on at the pagan temples, to participate in the sexual immorality of their culture and of their day. They just refused. You want Jesus to say, good, well done, good and faithful servant. And he did to them on these grounds. Now, there were things that, that, they, that they needed to work on. Let's get past that picture. What they needed to work on was this. It's time to clean house. He says there are some problems. You know that you've got people there who are living like Balaam did, who, who uh, manipulated, is probably the right word, manipulated Balak and, and the people of Israel into falling for eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And that's what he's saying is going on there. And uh, commentators will tell you that basically the problem that had come along was the same thing that happens in our day. People had started saying, you know, probably it's if it meant that I get to go about my life and just kind of go with the flow, if it means that I can just take the path of re least resistance and I don't have to always be in this fight for my faith, would it really be that big a deal? It's really just a pinch of incense. I don't really believe Caesar is Lord. I don't really believe what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be easier just to tell that little white lie and move on? And compromise begets compromise begets compromise. And the next thing you know, you've got brothers and sisters who believe that it's perfectly fine to go to the temple of Dionysus and to go and to have that meat that was sacrificed to idols and to go and to participate in the debauchery and the drunkenness and the orgies that were happening in the temple and say, but I live under grace. And to that, Jesus said to them, knock it off. You know it's wrong. You know it's a compromise of your faith and you know it doesn't work and you know that when I come to judge them, if you are with them, I judge the whole room. Knock it off. Save yourselves from this wicked generation is the way it's worded elsewhere. It's so easy, isn't it, to think at times that if we just compromised a little bit, if we just gave a little bit on a moral stance, if we could just be a little bit more politically correct, they would love us, right? If we just be a little bit more palatable, the world would celebrate us instead of fight us. And here's the thing. It's all bunk. The world actually doesn't have any desire 
to tolerate you any more than it does now. Satan has no desire to make life easier for you than it is now. He will at times offer you two evils to choose from. C.S. Lewis talks about one of the, one of the tricks in Satan's toolbox. And uh, if you're on Facebook, I posted this the other day. I just think it's brilliant. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that one of the things that Satan does is he will often present us with two evils and tell us that we need to choose between the lesser of two evils. Now, what he's done is he's got the evil he wants you to do, and he knows that if you're a good Christian, what are you going to say? I'm not going to do that. So all he has to do to manipulate you is say, okay, but if you don't do this, what about this? I know you've never heard this argument before in any way, shape, or form, but this is it. You know, this is, you know, you're on a low-carb diet, are you going to have sweet potatoes or white potatoes? You go with the sweet potatoes because they're the lesser of two evils. You know what I'm saying. Bacon. You go with the bacon. But this is, this is, this is what he does. What's the lesser of the two evils? Is it going to just the, all I'm going to do is pinch the incense, but I won't eat the meat? At least I'm not eating the meat. At least I'm not going over to the temple of Dionysus. I'm not offering those sacrifices and not participate in the orgy. So isn't it okay if I just say Caesar is Lord, let him get his little ego trip and move on? And what has he done? He's made you do evil and feel good about it. I mentioned to some of you that we had friends in, in Russia who owned a, a kiosk. I don't think I mentioned Maybe I mentioned this last week. No, I wasn't here last week, so I did not. I might have mentioned it in Delaware. The, uh, they had a kiosk. In, in, in a salon and, and, a, and a cafe. But kiosks were known for getting bombed at that point. And at that point in, in Russia, it was 1995, 96, 97. And they, uh, it was like Chicago in the 1920s. You had to pay for protection. It was just like that. Mafia the whole bit. In fact, the mayor was mafia. And now he works for Putin. The, figure that. And he, uh, what they would do is they would intimidate the little kiosk owners kind of like a convenience store, they would intimidate the kiosk owners by threatening to blow up their place. Now, they could bribe the mafia or they could bribe the police. Our friend decided they'd, they'd bribe, it's that lesser of two evils, they would bribe the police because at least they're a legitimate government entity, whereas these guys are just criminals. That was their, their reasoning. It made them able to sleep at night for doing something corrupt. Now, you understand their fear, and I, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place, but... This is what he does. This is what Satan does. And it's what he does with us, isn't it? So often, we know the good we ought to do. We know what God wants for our life. We look at the, at, at the circumstances we're in, whether it's because of family or work or whatever the pressure is. And we decide, well, at least it's not as bad as. Every bad argument begins, any bad moral argument begins with, well, at least I'm not doing what so-and-so does. When there is the good that we know we ought to do, when God has made plain our path, that's it. It's that simple. It's not so hard and difficult. 
Jesus looks at this church and He says, a lot of you are doing just that. You have not denied Me. You've not pinched the incense. You've not gone to the temple. You've not eaten that meat. You've not had those relationships. And that I want to praise. Let me tell you, some of you are really getting sucked into this argument of it's not that big a deal and there's grace and let's just not worry about it. It'll just make our lives easier. And slowly, the light that was supposed to stand out in darkness dims and blends in as nothing but darkness with a different name. And this is what he says. I am coming to judge the darkness. You make sure that your light, you make sure that your life is so different so rooted in the truth of what I'm telling you to how to live and how to be that there's no way that when I come to judge that you get caught in the wrong net. You live your life with such holiness it can never be mistaken for the pagan world around you. You live your life by such principle that no one ever has to question, are you a Christian? They know you are. They never question, are you more loyal to your Caesar than you are to Jesus? Because they know you have no loyalty to Caesar. You pay your taxes, you do what you got to do to stay legal, and you praise and serve God anyway. This is what he tells them. The world around you is a dark place. Don't get sucked in to that dark place. And he says to them, to those who conquer, to those who are willing to stand, regardless of what it costs, even like Antipas, if it costs your life to be a moral, principled, holy disciple of Jesus Christ. Even if that's what it takes, I'm going to make you a couple of promises. He always makes promises at the end if they'll repent. He says, here's the promises. One, I will give you the hidden manna. You know, manna goes back to the Old Testament when Israel was wandering in the desert and they needed food and where were they going to get it from? Because it's like they're wandering around Odessa. And if I'm stuck out in the middle of a pasture in Odessa looking for food, I'm in trouble. Am I right? Ain't no bacon out there. You can get a sweet potato. You can get nothing. Jesse found bacon even in Odessa. Is that what you said? I don't know. Bacon from the armpit of Texas. I don't think I want it. Anyway, even that, there's lines you just don't cross. Anyway, this is all really because I'm a San Angelo Central High School graduate. You realize that, right? And they've been whooping up, and I hope they whoop up on Permian. Anyway, that's a whole other thing in prayer request. You add that to your bulletin. Wandering in the desert, manna. Here we are. The Israelites are out wandering in the desert and they don't know what they're going to do. And, of course, they're whiny about it because the Israel was always whiny when they were in the desert. We should have just gone back to Egypt. We could have had fish and cucumbers and a whip at your back. They always left out the whip at their back. God provides manna. Eventually, they're like, why do we have to eat manna? Humans. And so, He provided. He says, if you will hold on. See, part of the promise of the gods of Pergamum was that God would also take their gods would take care of their crops if they would just debauch themselves to their God, pay to their God, you know, all those things. And what Jesus is saying with the manna is, I will give you, even if you lose your job because you refuse to worship your trade union God, even if you lose your living because you're ostracized by a dark culture around you, you don't forget. There is a God who provides in ways you can't expect. And just as I provided manna for them in the desert, I will provide for you. And even if it costs your life, you are welcome at my banquet table in the new heavens and the new earth. I've got your back. You don't worry about it. I take care of your needs in this life and the life to come. And I'm going to give you 
the hidden manna, which just kind of has an alert. Ooh, God, going to give me some God food I've never seen. That's got to be good. I bet it tastes like bacon. Anyway, I bet it is. And he says that's the promise. There's one other promise. In the Roman court system, when you were found guilty or innocent, your verdict was revealed to you with a stone. They would give you this stone. If it was a black stone, you were guilty and you would receive the punishment for your crime. If you received a white stone, you were innocent and set free. He says to those who hold on, to those who remain faithful, I'm going to give you a white stone. So he says he's coming in judgment. The whole letter was about I'm coming in judgment and I judge you forgiven, free, and innocent. Even better than that. He says, and on your white stone, I'm not just giving you a white stone, I'm going to engrave your name on it. I'm going to put your name on that white stone. Nobody can take that away. He says, and it's not just any name. It's not just Joe or Bob or Susie. It's, it's I'm going to give you a new name. Doesn't that sound familiar? Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. Simon to Peter. I'm going to give you a new name, which nobody else knows. Just be between you and me. We like nicknames, right? I have friends named Possum and Cat Squirrel and things like that. Jesus is going to give a whole new name to those who hold on. What a promise. It's a relationship. You're going to be mine, forgiven, free, innocent. And we're going to live together. and Every need will be met. So no matter how they threaten you, no matter what they try to put up against you, don't you worry. I've got you. What a promise to a church living in such difficult, difficult times. One that even from within is getting pressure from within the church to say, oh, come on, do we really have to be this stern? Do we really have to hold this fast? Do we really have to deny? Do we really have to stand up and be brave? He says, yes, you do. But the reward for it will far outweigh any momentary, this is Paul's wording, light and momentary afflictions because you have no idea how good what it is that lies ahead of you. What an incredible promise we have. The encouragement I would give you this morning, and we'll stand and sing our song and all that stuff, is for every one of us to look at our life and say, you know, if Jesus were writing this letter to me, where have I compromised? Where have I fallen for one of Balaam's arguments, the lesser of two evils? Where have I given in when I should have just stood firm? Where have I compromised my faith? And what do I need to do? Same thing there. Start making those right choices. Start making the right decisions. Be brave. And if you can't stand on your own bravery, stand on Jesus' bravery because He's right there with you in every moment. Antipas didn't just go to that death. And they say that he died praying. He died praying for the Christians that were still living. What a perspective. He wasn't worried about himself. He knew where he was going. He was more concerned with the people still left behind. Same kind of a message as later in Revelation, just a couple chapters later, where those who had died as martyrs like Antipas says the souls under the altar, gives this image of souls under an altar, crying out to Jesus, saying, how long, how long do they have to put up with that? They're glad to be where they are. You look at your life and you talk to the Lord about what needs to change and then just get after it. Part of what needs to change is that you've never given your life to the Lord. 
If you've never given your heart to Jesus and been buried with Christ in baptism, your sins washed away, your old life buried, your new life raised, today is the day. You know, we never have a promise of another day. Today is the day. If you need to do that, please come as we stand and as we sing.